Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. I'm going to apologize up front. There's, uh, there's a little bit of VR demonstration going on just outside the studio today, so uh, hopefully that won't interfere too much. But if you hear some voices outside, that's probably what that is. Um, this is the last day of class, at least for the, at least for the semester. Um, yeah, this is the... <laughs> Last time uh, we get to talk about Hitchcock. And so what I would like to do is I would like to kind of review everything that we've gone over, at least the major points, through the lens of Hitchcock's last film. We started with the first true Hitchcock film, not necessarily his first film, but his true first true Hitchcock film. We're going to end on the very last film that he made. And that movie is Family Plot. A Family Plot is the story of two separate couples of con artists whose cons overlap, which causes confusion and misdirection for the criminal pairs. This is perhaps the truest comedy uh, that we're going to talk about, but there is still all the other makings of a Hitchcock film. So let's talk a little bit about the film first, and then we'll kind of dive into all those elements of a Hitchcock film that are found in this film. Uh, Hitch said in an interview recorded in Hitchcock and Hitchcock, Volume 1, that it was this dual storyline that interested him. He says, and I quote, in each, in each subject there is something I want to say, in the sense that there is something which attracts my interest, and I want to bring that out in my treatment of the subject. It may be something technical, as in Family Plot, where it was a structural image of those two separate plots and separate groups of characters coming gradually, inevitably together and how to do that and make it seem completely natural. And that's how we got Hitchcock's last film. It was simply that that structural challenge of these kind of dual plot lines converging. And realistically, it's really only notable in that regard. Um, it is not, by any stretch of the imagination, Hitchcock's greatest film. Um, it's not even part of that golden era, which sort of ended with Marnie as there was a large break between that and Frenzy, which we talked about last time. However, it does have everything we've talked about. And through that lens, I think it's worth looking at. Um, and pretty much every point I'm going to pull, unless I tell you differently, is, um, is pulled from a Spotify interview that you can go find. It's, um, it's called 96-Minute Masterclass with Alfred Hitchcock on Filmmaking. It's a very long title. Basically, if you type in Alfred Hitchcock, look him up under, I believe, under Artist, then you should find this, this album of Hitchcock interviews. And I think the very last track was basically a press interview uh, with Hitchcock about, about this film. And so this is where I found all this information. Um, so let's talk about suspense. What is suspense? We've talked about this uh, ad nauseum. Suspense is giving the audience all the information, and but but keeping it from the characters. So Hitch says, an audience wondering is not an audience emoting. Now think about that in relationship to suspense. If the audience is wondering, that means they don't have information about what's going on. And if they're sitting there wondering what's going to happen next, then they don't have the mental and emotional energy to, to emote along with the story, to take them through this ride. You know, a lot like we talked about with Psycho, this idea of, of, of taking an audience on a ride. So 
in in this film, Hitch makes every point perfectly clear to the audience, even going so far as to put one couple in a white car and and the other couple in a black car so that the audience can never be confused about who is where throughout the many driving scenes in this film. This is also an adaptation. It was an adaptation from a novel called The Rainbird Pattern. Um, but again, it's a loose adaptation. It's stri- he, he just stripped only a few key ideas and changed everything else, even going so far as to change the location of the film. Or, or excuse me, the location of the story. Sorry about the noise outside. I'll do what I can to kind of kind of talk over it. Um, but again, that idea that that some things are created and that are necessary for the medium that you're telling them in, but film is, could be a different medium if you're adapting it from a novel, from a stage play, from whatever. And so there's some things that need to be altered for the visual medium as opposed to the written medium. Um, and speaking of locations, Hitch utilizes the few locales he chooses including the middle of nowhere in a mountain, on a mountain. And he, he, he utilizes these locations throughout the film for their most fully dramatic effect. There's, there's a meeting between, between one of our con artist couples, the, sort of the protagonist of the film, um, <clears throat> and someone that they think is going to help them get the information that they need uh, so that they can con this woman, basically... Um, but the, the meeting is up on this, up on this mountain. And how do you get up onto a mountain? If you're driving a car, you go up a steep winding road. Well, that steep winding road ends up becoming a major dramatic element when they come back down the road. And a major technique he uses in that scene coming down the road is this subjective treatment. But Hitch takes this one step further than just shooting people. You know, you know how we talked about subjective treatment, this idea of, you shoot person looking at something, you shoot what they're looking at, and then you cut back to the person looking at it, right? And that helps form kind of a thought process and is an excellent element of visual storytelling through not just shots, but also through the power of editing, through the power of montage. It, it, it should never just be just shot of person, shot of what they see, shot of person. You need to include some of the subjective to to what they're seeing. And so in this film, as, as they drive down that steep winding road, uh, he's able to create a subjective experience. He starts with their POV from inside the car where you can see the outline. You can see um, you can see the frame around the windshield. You can see the dashboard. You can see the steering wheel. But as the suspense in that sequence builds, Soon all you can see is is just the road and what's on it because that's how we drive. If you think about uh, about the way we see the world when we're driving, what we see is what's out in front of the road. We're not even though even though the frame of the windshield and the dashboard are within our peripherals, that's not what we're focusing on. And so he subjectively does that by changing the framing as the suspense builds and only focusing on the key parts that build that suspense. Um, a really interesting note, uh, sort of an offshoot, uh, sort, sort of a one-off on this topic, is something Hitch told Bruce Dern, who is one of the stars of this film. Um, 
and this is a story Bruce Stern recalls in the uh, in the making of documentary called Plotting Family Plot that you can find on the DVD uh, or the Blu-ray, where Hitch told Bruce, once a character is in a car, you can't leave that car. And this is a mistake that we see a lot of people, well, maybe not a mistake, it would have been a mistake in Hitch's eyes. Um, one of the things that, that, that I'm learning and that I hope we all can learn as a as, as we are each taught by these different masters of film, that there's always more than one way to make a movie. There are no right answers. There's just better and worse. But Hitch felt very strongly that once a character is in a car, you can't leave that car. And it's something we see a lot of people do in car chase scenes, especially older films, where you're in the car with the characters, and that's where the characters are, and that's where they're experiencing all the emotions. But then we'll cut wide and show the cars, you know, hurtling down the freeway or whatever it is. Well, then you're not staying with the characters. You're not creating a subjective experience, which is something that Hitch felt very strongly about. You're creating an, an objective experience. You've now made the audience almost like a third-person omniscient viewer, not someone experiencing the the emotion with the characters. Now... Something else to note during this during this great suspense sequence of them going down this mountainside in the car um, is that he also relieves the tension with his patented humor. He doesn't keep us in suspense the whole time. He's able to relieve the suspense with humor and thus also juxtaposing the humor with the suspense, making both of them even even more effective than they might have been on their own. Now, what I'd like to do is kind of step out of that scene And let's look at the film as a whole. Uh, Hitch's entire goal was to avoid the cliche. He says the film took a year to make, and the reason was that they were constantly trying to figure out how to get out of tired old writing traps, how to get out of the cliches. And while I don't think anyone would call this Hitch's best work, the one thing you cannot say about it is that it is cliche. There are elements of it that may have become cliche after the fact. There may be things that people have stolen from this film later that have become cliche, but at the time that it, that it was released, it was as cutting edge creatively as it possibly could have been. And one of the reasons for that is that he was very careful to create real characters and not just stock archetypes. However, those real characters requires real acting. And Hitch said that many actors and actresses have felt that they weren't directed by Hitch. But Hitch had his own theory about that. He felt that he shouldn't necessarily have to have to direct all the time because he and the writer had put everything they needed to know in the script. And if the performer was doing something wrong, he would tell them. He had this run-in with Doris Day. He had this run-in with a lot of actors who felt that he didn't give them direction. And the reason he didn't give them direction was because they were doing everything right because they had read the script and understood the script and taken it from there. And that was one of the things that that we must remember about Hitch. Hitch was not a great director of actors necessarily because he felt that actors were just like everybody else on the set. They were a technician. They were merely there to help bring the story to life through their craft. And the story was totally inherent in the script that had been created and thought out very thoroughly beforehand and, and, and was the entire basis of his vision of how he understood the story and that, that, that affected you know, where he would place the camera, what lens he would choose. And all those, all those decisions that a director makes should, should then also be informed by, by the decisions everyone else would make. 
where the lights would go, for example, or where uh, or or how the actors should behave. In fact, Bruce Dern Bruce Dern makes an interesting point about how Hitch directed. In, in in fact, he tells a story about how Hitch cast him, and Hitch told Bruce Dern that he liked Bruce Dern because he never knew what decisions Bruce was going to make, but whatever he did, it would be entertaining, and that's what the character needed. But the important thing that Bruce Dern understood was that he would be free to do whatever he wanted, be free to make whatever decisions he made. But Bruce also understood that he needed to stay within the frame that Hitch had created. He needed to stay within the shot because that shot had been very carefully selected by Hitch. And all this brings us to our last point about Hitch was that everything, of course, was planned out to perfection. He storyboarded everything. He planned every shot and cut meticulously before ever stepping foot on set and brought in the people he knew would be able to execute what he wanted, which is why you see so many of the same names in the credits of his films. Bruce Dern tells another story where Hitch actually called cut twice, right in the middle of a word, right in the middle of the line, cutting, cutting Dern off from finishing that line. And when he asked Hitch about this, Hitch said that he didn't need him to finish it in that shot because he would already be cutting to another setup where his dialogue would carry over. That's how meticulously planned out Hitch was. And there's really something to be said for that, that Hitch had such a great understanding of the medium that every decision he made was the right decision without him even looking through the eyepiece, without him even arriving on set. He had already worked it out in his head. And I think some of us can really learn from that because one of the chic ways to do film sometimes is to is to do it very improvisational. And sometimes that works if you have the right people around who can carry that out. But some of us need to not be carried away by by instantaneous inspiration that happens on the set. Some of us need to be more disciplined. Um, and some of us even prefer to work this way. I know that I prefer a heavy preparation method before stepping on set. That's my preferred way to film. And if that's the case, then 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 you really need to study and understand all of the tools in your medium and understand how, how shots are going to interact with each other when they're cut together so that you can actually create something that 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 on set that will then work in the edit. So that's our review of Hitch as seen through Family Plot. That wraps up our first semester of Hitchcock University. Um, but I want to say a few things about Hitch um, and give you all a look at what the next semester is going to be. Um, because I, I, set up, I set up this class in a way that would be educational for us all. And, I, and, and being a film history buff as I am, I wanted to start us off with someone – who who covered a wide gamut of that film history. See, Alfred Hitchcock, as you may remember from our first class session, started in the silent era, and he finished in the 70s. It's 50 years, give or take, of filmmaking that he helped define, he helped construct, and helped educate so many filmmakers who came after him. He didn't have many influences because he was the influence for everyone else. He was the one who, who, who came in in the early stages when it was still a very, a very malleable medium and helped define it for everyone else. And therefore, he has influenced what we call modern cinema. 
He grew with cinema, but more importantly, he grew the art of cinema. And yet he was strangely underappreciated in his time. He had no Oscar wins for Best Director. Uh, he only later received a Lifetime Achievement Award. And as a, as a maker of thrillers in the United States, which still was and still is the center of cinema, he was not considered a serious filmmaker, as we talked about with Foreign Correspondent. Thrillers in the United States have never really been been considered strong subject matter. They're, they're often considered B material, secondary to, to a good drama or what have you. And it really wasn't until Hitchcock was interviewed by Francois Truffaut uh, that, that some in the intellectual community and the critics began to take him seriously because Truffaut was someone that they took seriously. They considered him a real artist. And it was his, his admiration for Hitchcock and, and, and the way he was able to sit there with Hitchcock and Hitchcock kind of broke down um, – his technical abilities and the way he thinks and his thought process, that people began to really understand that Hitchcock really was a master of his craft. It's just that his subject matter wasn't something that was considered highbrow. But by this time, he only had five movies left in him, which was really unfortunate. Um, in fact, he was working on another film before he became um, – so physically unable to continue to work that he had to let it go. He was a filmmaker right up until his last, his last days, really. Um, and it's because of that 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 I want to highlight some projects that that I want to highlight um, some other of his films that that we did not get a chance to get to because I didn't want to do. 50 episodes on Hitchcock. Um, I want us to be able to move on to other filmmakers, but I do want to bring these other films to your attention so that um, so that if you feel so led, you can go out, look for these films, and hopefully learn more just simply through observation. So the honorable mentions um, of Hitchcock's career that we didn't get to, um, and some of these I, I actually wish I had swapped out for others because I think they would have made stronger episodes, and I'm sorry about that, but that's okay. Um, first film, Murder, which was uh, his second uh, talkie film following Blackmail. Um, is a really good story uh, and, and a great um, expressionist exhibition. Uh, Secret Agent is a really good story, very well told. Um, it's from the 30s uh, in his British period when he was doing more of the spy thriller sort of thing. Um, sort of following, um, sort of in the same vein as uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much in 39 Steps. Um, but even darker than those films, which is really fascinating. Um, Saboteur, which is one of his early American films following Foreign Correspondent, one of his first films with Universal Studios. Good story. It's a little heavy-handed at times, but very, very entertaining and some great technique, of course, on display. Um, Lifeboat is a fascinating, uh, another one of these war films, which is what Foreign Correspondent, Saboteur, Lifeboat, all these movies were, were war films, basically. Um, it didn't do very well at the time, but now with some distance between us and World War II, it, it, it works really, really well. Um, and of course, it's a great technical exercise because the entire story takes place within a lifeboat adrift in the Atlantic Ocean. Spellbound is a very entertaining story with some phenomenal technical brilliance. Um, if I remember correctly, that's the one 
where um, where he brought in Salvador Dali to do some of the design in these dream sequences, which are fascinating. Um, to Catch a Thief, another one of his color films, uh, also shot in Vista Vision. Um, really entertaining film uh, with more of his collaborator, co- collaborators um, from from that golden era. He, there's Cary Grant and Grace Kelly in that film. Um, the Ron Man is a really strong film uh, that also serves as a clinic for subjective treatment and first-person storytelling. And uh, and the last one I want to get to in this category of uh, of these films that I really encourage you to go see is a uh, Torn Curtain, which followed Marnie is not as strong as Marnie, um, and 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 is sort of the end of that golden period, but Hitch's technique in that film is totally flawless. By that point, he really really had a handle on what he was doing. Um, and it's on full display in that film. It is really, really worth your time. Um, it stars Paul Newman and I can't believe I just, uh, Julie Andrews. I almost forgot her name, Julie Andrews. And there's, there's a few other films that I want to bring up. Um, they aren't particularly great films in my opinion. Uh, you may disagree. In fact, I'd love to know if you do. Uh, but there is some excellent work on display in these films. Um, number 17, one of his earlier British talkies. Um, not a great film, um, but the opening alone, if that's all you watched was the first 10, 15 minutes of it, um, has some of the most expressionistic uh, displays I've ever seen. It is truly phenomenal in that sense. Um, Young and Innocent, also not great. Um, but towards the end of the film, there's a really great long crane shot um, that's worth watching on its own. It goes from this giant ballroom to a close-up of a drummer. Um, as, and not even close-up of a drummer, a close-up literally of his eyes um, as we uh, learn that, that, that he is uh, the murderer. Um, the Paradigm Case... Um, is a great example of how to film a dialogue film without just showing pictures of people talking. Um, and then under Capricorn, I didn't find it a very enthralling story, um, but it has some really good performances um, by Joseph Cotton and Ingrid Bergman. Uh, yeah, Ingrid Bergman. I almost said Ingmar Bergman. Ingrid Bergman, the actress. Um, and is is definitely a clear follow-up to Rope. Again, it's in Technicolor, and again, it's all done in these very long takes. It's not done all in one shot like Rope is, but almost every scene is a single take. So to kind of wrap wrap this up and get us sort of propelled into, into our next semester, um, films like The Godfather, Jaws, Taxi Driver, and Carrie were all being released in the same decade that Hitch was finishing up his career. And all of these films were influenced by Hitchcock. And his influence is continually felt today in filmmakers like Steven Spielberg, Guillermo del Toro, David Fincher, Wes Anderson, Martin Scorsese, and many others. In fact, Martin Scorsese, Scorsese, actually, that's really how you pronounce his name, Martin Scorsese, anyway, um, was growing up at the time of, of Hitchcock's golden era. And he says that he borrowed from Hitchcock's The Wrong Man for aspects of his classic Taxi Driver. He broke down the shower scene from Psycho and created a parallel shot-for-shot remake, basically, of it um, in one of the fight scenes in Raging Bull. And he also borrowed the high-angle shot 
which Hitchcock uses quite frequently for various reasons. Um, and the reason I bring all this up is is because I'm I'm going to kind of preview the upcoming season for, or the upcoming semester for you. Next semester is looking at Marty. We're going to look at Marty Scorsese's work. Um, class will be over until the holidays. We're basically going to take a holiday break. Um, we will return after the new year. Uh, I am hesitantly looking at January 8th at the moment. Um, and I think there may be um, some sort of a, a syllabus that I might post, sort of an episode where I kind of break down uh, the movies that we're going to go through um, and, and kind of tell you this is what you can expect. So if you want to get ahead, you want to watch these movies before we get there, you have an opportunity. I think that's one of the mistakes I made this year was was keeping the titles to myself. Um, I think that's something that 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 will work better if I – if I give you basically a syllabus, you know, and kind of tell you this is where we're going to go this next semester. So so we'll do that. Um, look for that again uh, sometime after the new year. Yeah, hesitantly January 8th. If I can get it up sooner, I will. But I can't make any promises. Um, but no later than January 8th, we'll have, we'll, we'll have the syllabus up. Um, and I'm also going to kind of regroup and try to figure out ways to improve uh, the presentation format of our class sessions. And if you have any suggestions at all, please, please don't hesitate to send those to me. Um, I really want to know how this semester went. I want to know uh, what you, my, um, really my fellow classmates, I can't even call you my students because uh, we all learned from from Hitchcock, the the, the true professor of our of our semester. Um, but yeah, please, please um, email me any suggestions, any thoughts you have uh, at um, HitchcockUniversity at gmail.com or uh, through Facebook. Just have a Hitchcock University page there. Uh, Twitter, Hitch underscore U, U as in university. Um, thank you so much for listening and for sticking through this kind of roller coaster of a semester. I've, I've definitely learned a lot as this has gone on and I've, I've, I've I've had to kind of find my own way in this, and I think we're starting to get to a point where where I kind of have a better understanding of what I'm doing, um, and hopefully I only continue to improve here. Um, so yeah, look for the syllabus after the new year. The class will resume no later than January 8th, um, but it could be up before then, so make sure you followed us on whatever it is or subscribed wherever it is you get this podcast. Uh, Thank you again so much for attending this semester of Hitchcock University. I will see you again in 2018.